Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, September 11th, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, September 9th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 19,388. That's 19388. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 19,389. That's 19389. This morning, A Vision for You celebrates its 10th anniversary with a very special edition, 12 testimonials as to the experience and the results of the program of recovery and a relationship with power. In some respect, the word anniversary is not a suitable term to describe this occasion, for it carries the implication that a goal, a resting point on a journey, has been reached. The program of recovery, however, has no finish line. So, too, our work as a group, a society who must continue to prudently cleave to its single purpose, the carrying of the message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched and transformed by these 12 steps. The sole purpose of this step work is to find power through the experience of a spiritual awakening. The 12 steps enable people of all walks of life, all different types from all different backgrounds, in spite of all odds, to experience change, transformation, like never seen anywhere else. Yes, as the big book states, it means that all of us, Whatever our race, our creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Today, A Vision for You celebrates its 10th anniversary, 10 years of coming together each morning to crack crack open the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous and to bring it to life based on our personal experience as recovered compulsive overeaters. Thank you, A Vision for You Fellowship, each one of you who have helped in our high mission to carry the message of recovery. Thank you for your continued time, your effort, your support, your dedication. The spiritual chain reaction that grew from Ebby and Bill to Dr. Bob in Akron to Roseanne S. in California 
with Overeaters Anonymous beginning in January 19, 1960, to A Vision for You, which began July 18, 2012, and has stretched to countless compulsive overeaters with a membership in excess of 10,000 and represents all 50 states and over 60 countries. As the big book states, we have recovered and been given the power to help others. Yes, God uses recovered people. Yes, we celebrate the wonderful growth of a vision for you in the 10th year of its founding. We marvel and we rejoice that the near impossible beginning with 40 members to now a membership close to 11,000 has really happened. But congratulatory periods can tend to smugness, resting periods to retrogression. We continue to have a responsibility to carry this message of recovery to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. No matter how different our own personal concerns, we are all bound together by one common responsibility. Clearly, our first duty to a vision for you and OA's future is to maintain and grow in full strength what we now have. Never should we be lulled into complacent self-satisfaction by our seeming success or allow unthinking enthusiasm to put us off the main track. This is the subtle temptation which could stagnate us today or disintegrate us tomorrow. Our chief responsibility to the newcomer must always be an adequate presentation of the program of recovery found in the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our fellowship has been permitted to achieve only by God's grace, God's mandate, God's love, and God's mercy. As a fellowship, we ask nothing of power, nothing of personal success or recognition. But we do have an enormous interest in having influence. We want to touch lives. As we better use the language of the heart, may we continue to grow. For so long as we remain sure that our growth is God's gift, rather than any virtue earned or created by ourselves, and for so long as our fellowship around the world continues to be ever more inclusive of those in need, and for so long as we speak the language of love and service, for just so long will our true ambition be the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Today, you will hear from 12 voices, recovered compulsive overeaters, each describing in their own personal way how the individual steps have changed them. Twelve voices weaving together twelve stories of transformation. Messages of depth and weight, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Let us begin from step one. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. I welcome Stephen G. from Canada to the line. 
Good morning, Leah, and uh, good morning to all my fellows. Thank you for being here this morning. My name is Stephen G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada, and I'm going to talk about step one for about seven minutes. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Very briefly about me, I'm 49 years old. I came into Overeaters Anonymous about 12 years ago. My disease of compulsive overeating had manifested itself with um, weight gain and obesity. And uh, I thought that was the actual problem. Uh, I learned much more later. And I thought I was a normal person. And so I tried all the things that normal people do, uh, diet, exercise, restricting, seeing a nutritionist, working out with a personal trainer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, My peak weight was about 300 pounds, but I'd gained and lost 50 plus pounds countless number of times. And I always uh, regained it and more. And I came to Overeaters Anonymous because I, I was out of ideas. And I heard the message that take what you need and leave the rest. And that's what I did. So I didn't work the steps uh, consistently. I wasn't entirely abstinent. And um, I got some relief, brief periods of abstinence, um, followed by relapse. And uh, within the first three years of Overeaters Anonymous, I had three major relapses of increasing severity. And the final relapse I had lasted for about a month. I only left my apartment to go and buy food. And when I went to buy food, I couldn't look the clerk at the store in the eye. Uh, My apartment was a mess covered with uh, dirty dishes. I hadn't returned phone calls or emails for weeks. And um, one morning I woke up. My stomach was uh, so distended and full. I was so uncomfortable. I was miserable. And the only thing I could think of that would make me feel better was would be to eat. Um, and then I knew I was there was something fundamentally wrong with me, and I couldn't see a way out um, except for suicide. I came back to Overeaters Anonymous, and I worked the steps um, as they were outlined, uh, based on a small, how, how a sponsor took me through the program at the time, and I got recovery. Actually, I got abstinence, I should say, but it felt a bit unstable. It felt dependent on being able to get a hold of my sponsor, being able to to get to this particular meeting. Uh, a few years ago, I came into contact with people from Vision for You, and I was directed to the Big Book. I saw people who des- described themselves as being recovered, and um, and uh, who were living life peacefully, and they weren't talking about food or weight. Um, and in the Big Book, uh, I was given a very simple understanding of this disease of compulsive overeating, which is it has two components. The first one is an allergy of the body. The second one is an obsession of the mind. So I have uh, an abnormal reaction to certain foods, ingredients, and behaviors. I'm not normal. And when I eat them, I get a brief, pleasurable, heightened pleasurable effect, and then I get the phenomenon of craving, which means I need more and more and more and more. And then the second part is the obsession of the mind, which tells me that no matter how often I stop, I will always start again. And I did this over and over and over and over. And this condition is permanent, it's progressive, and it's fatal. 
Permanence, this became clear to me. Progressive, this became clear to me. Fatal, this became clear to me. In my case, it would end with suicide. The binges were so emotionally uncomfortable for me that it wouldn't get to the point of the chronic problems related to obesity. And it explained the solution, which is entire abstinence from the foods, ingredients, and behaviors that I'm allergic to, and a spiritual experience as a result of working the 12 steps as they're outlined in the big book. <clears throat> and a key piece of information I needed to understand is that abstinence is not the solution. Abstinence for a compulsive overeater is an uncomfortable, painful, unstable, and temporary state unless followed quickly by a spiritual experience as the result of working the 12 steps as they're instructed in the big book of AA. A plan of eating is not the solution. There's a saying that abstinence feels better uh, than anything tastes. That I have found that not to be true. Abstinence plus a spiritual experience is the recovered state, and that can be permanent one day at a time, so long as I follow these very, very simple instructions. And nobody could tell me I had the disease. I had to be given this information and then go and experience the disease and come and look at my history and come to that conclusion. There's a tradition in our fellowship which says the only requirement for membership in a way is a desire to stop eating compulsively. This is a tradition of humility and inclusivity, uh, and it gives us a safe place to come and learn about the disease, which is what I needed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a desire to stop eating compulsively is not the only requirement for recovery. What is required for recovery is complete and utter hopelessness and deflation. The simple truth is I will not be entirely abstinent from a substance or behavior that gives me a sense of ease and comfort, and I will not work the 12 steps to the best of my ability until I am completely backed into a corner. And this has been my experience of my own disease, my experience in working with others, my experience of uh, the people who have strong recovery in the program are people who all came to a state of hopelessness. And the big book is actually very clear about this principle. In the first 164 pages, every alcoholic who recovers um, is at a state of complete hopelessness. Bill W. on page 8, I, who had thought so much of myself, was cornered at last. Quicksand stretched before me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Yeah. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with or without alcohol. Then he will know loneliness as few do. That is what I experienced. When I got there, I did what was necessary, and I've had a complete revolution in my way of life, a stable body weight for years, a peace and serenity that I could not have imagined. But I had to have all doors closed to me and be left with only one door. And when I was at that stage, then all I had to do was pick up the simple toolkit that had been laid at my feet by others who had recovered. And my life has been transformed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen G. from Canada. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Janet B. from New Jersey. Hi, good morning. This this is Janet B. from New Jersey, recovered from compulsive eating. Um, happy to be here. So just a very little about me. In a nutshell, I was a binging, purging, train wreck of a woman 
stuffing bagel chips behind my throat, be, down my throat behind a locked bathroom door. It was almost 39 years ago. And that night I went to a meeting after six and a half years of meetings and not getting better. And I just said, I will do anything. And after that meeting, I went out into the parking lot and I just said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you are like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me like and what you're like and how to worship you. And it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by his grace, the obsession has been kept at bay now for um, almost 39 years. So step two, I think, is such an important step because it says I have to come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Well, why is it so important that I believe it? And I think it's because in step three tells me I have to surrender my life to God, not only my food, but my whole life, how I do my taxes, how I am in my relationship, how I act at work, how I act with strangers, what I do with my spare time. I have to give it all to God. Well, how can I give it to God if I don't believe in God or if I don't believe that God believes in me or cares about me? And I think there's really four things that I've done or that we can do that help us come to believe that there is a God, that God loves us madly, and that God will restore us to sanity. So the first one, I think, is to look at the evidence. Like, one, look at the evidence of the other people in the room who've recovered, and then look at the evidence, the clues that are in the big book, right? Um, page 45, for example, tells me that the purpose of this big book is to help me find a power greater than myself that will solve my problem. Well, if this power, this God is going to solve my problem, this power must be strong because this illness was stronger than I am, so this power has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. This power must be able to think, which means my power can't be a doorknob because a doorknob can't think. This power must be smart. And most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would this higher power, this God, bother trying to solve my problems? So here I have a God that cares about me. Um, the second thing I can do is look at What's blocked me from believing in God and his love? And I love the lines on page 55 where it says, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. So it says, deep down in me, in all of us, is the fundamental idea of God. That God loves me so much that when he created me, he gave me like, two lungs, two kidneys, and the fundamental idea of himself. So yeah, I could say I'm an agnostic, just like I could say, well, I'm a lung agnostic. I don't believe I have lungs, but that doesn't mean it's true. So deep down in all of us is the idea of God. And it says what blocks it is calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. So calamity, what are the bad things that have happened to me or my family or in the world that I can't wrap my head around. Pomp. Mm. What are the things where I say, if there was a God, I wouldn't be able to do what I want, so therefore I won't believe in God. And worship of other things. What are my idols? What are the things I'm putting ahead of God and saying, I won't be happy unless 
unless my kids get into a certain college, unless I get married, unless I have a baby. So all these things block my belief in God. So I think the third way we can come to believe in a power greater than ourselves is to do what we know. Now, obviously, coming around at the beginning, we don't know a lot. But a friend of mine who was a recovered alcoholic said, everyone who comes into a 12-step program can stop lying and stop stealing right away. I can do what I know, which I think numero uno is to be honest. If I'm not honest, it's like I'm taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across my heart. God won't coexist with dishonesty. So if I want to come to believe in this God who loves me, who will restore me to sanity, then I have to be honest. I can't steal. I can't put myself first. And the fourth thing I think that helps us come to believe is to pray. So I had always believed in God, but I, it was totally irrelevant to my life. It's like I believed in God, but I didn't do what God wanted. I didn't care what God wanted. It was just like, I guess I believe that there's a country called South, a continent called South America that exists, but it's irrelevant to my life. Um, so I believed in God, but it was irrelevant. God had to become relevant. So for me, it was a surrender saying, God, I've believed in you. And now I'm willing to do what you want. And I think if someone doesn't believe in God, they can start with a simpler prayer. And it can go something like this. God, I don't know if you exist. And if you exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, I need help. And I think when God hears a prayer like that, he just says to his team of angels, let's get to work on a renovation job on that person's soul. Because my belief and my experience is that there really is a God. He really cares about each and every one of us. He has a soft spot in his heart for addicts. And he launches search and rescue missions for us. And he is accessible to all of us. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Janet B. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Kathy S. from Georgia. Thank you, Leah. This is Kathy S., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. And um, one of the big things that I learned through this meeting is that if you're struggling with any step, take a look at the one prior. Step back. (laughs) made a decision if I'm struggling with turning my will over my will in my life over to God the key is actually even in this step as we understood him I need to look at my step two what do I believe about God is God really good can I trust God is God all-powerful does God love me is God going to give me the wisdom I need I had to make that that those I had to come to an idea of what I needed from God a higher power in order to even have the willingness to surrender, which is the principle of step three. Prior to that belief, I had to be so desperate in dying and like was stated, so backed into a corner with hopelessness that there was no other alternative other than to end myself, which the food was going to bring if I didn't just stop. So step three making that decision. It's a decision to do the work, the remaining steps for the rest of my life. 
You know, it's awesome. That's the action that gets carried out. I always thought of this step as just, you know, okay, say a little prayer and let's move on. But where it was so transformational for me this time, I believe, is, is again, just that, that solid step one, knowing my powerlessness, knowing that I need a higher power to save me. Step two, coming to know or being willing to be open-minded about my concept of God and, and what I really needed, things like love and power and wisdom, freedom from self-doubt, because who I was when I was born, I was wired to have to have a re- an intimate relationship with God, as I learned from someone, a fellow in our program. I was always sensitive, anxious. I was self-centered. I was just, I was born an addict. And there's no better description of me than um, where it starts on step three in the big book, pages 60 to 62, <laughs> where it talks about the self-will run riot. In order to really anchor in on this step, the first requirement, like it says on page 60, is that I'd be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Yes, that was me. And when I looked at the remaining words on some of these pages, you know, before recovery or even any given morning, I am running the show. I'm full of fear, controlling, demanding. I can be incredibly nice and people-pleasing to get my way. I, I am dishonest. I had no people skills. I could not control my emotions or my thinking, but I thought I could. If only I tried hard enough with my life, you know, and what this process taught me is that I do not know best. I think I know what's happening, and I think I have all authority to judge. I think I know what should be happening or what others are thinking and that it all matters. Because for years, my life, my value, serenity was based on the behavior of other people. And, um, and my security from like money or my appearance. And, um, and it just, it, it didn't work well. You know, everything had to be uplifted and revamped everything that I thought I knew. And, um, and, you know, the steps did teach me and even my own experience looking back on my past showed me how my troubles, my fear, everything, you know, it was of my own making. It arises out of myself, and I'm an example of extreme well-run riot. So what is the solution? You know, it's God. And the how and the why of it, like it says on page 62, is that I have to quit playing God. I have to know who God is, or I at least have an inkling, and know who I am, that I'm not God. And that principle, like it says here too, is the keystone of the arch through which we pass to freedom. And I looked up the word keystone. It's a wedge-shaped piece at the crown of an arch that locks all the other pieces in place. So when I'm disturbed and people that know me know I do a lot of 10 steps because my sensitive nature, I'm easily disturbed. So I take a look at that and it always shows me, it always sends me back to this idea that I want my way. I think I know how things are go- should go. I have an expectation. I'm playing God. I'm trying to run the show and other people are retaliating and I'm like, oh, oh. And then I get restored. When I come back to God through surrender, when I come back to seeing my part, I get what is on page 63, those promises. I can enjoy peace of mind. I trust that God provides what I need if I keep close to him. I continue to do the work 
and I continue to add more of this idea of surrender into my life. You know, I look at my self-will, my, my quote, toolkit. And, and in self-will, all I have is fear, control, selfishness. I shut down. I have a know-it-all perspective. I'm in self-pity, dishonesty. I am binging. I'm over-exercising, over-talking. Just add it to the list. And versus with God's will, I have a spiritual toolkit. There's the idea of surrender. I let go. I just trust God, that God is in control of everything. There's, I practice honesty, humility, forgiveness, service, love. I cease fighting. I have acceptance. I have an open mind, and, and there's just harmony with me, you know? And I look at things like, like even this day, September 11th, you know, years ago, what was it, 21 years ago, a great tragedy happened, you know? And, and I think there's a part of me in my perspective how could a good and loving God allow that to happen? But the truth is, as long as this loving God gave us this gift of self-will, there will always be opportunities for other people to play God. And I'm not in control of that. But what God does do is that I trust that he makes everything, everything, good, bad, because again, I'm not the judge, but he makes all things come together for the greater good. And as we know in our fellowship, the tragedy, the t alcoholic torture of addiction has brought about a new level of peace in my life and harmony with people promises on like on page 83 that I never thought possible for my life. And, um, and I'm just so grateful and my out of time already. So thank you so much. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kathy S from Georgia. Step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Katie B. from New York. Hi, good morning. I'm Katie B. and I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive eater and I'm so grateful to be here with you all today. Um, okay, so I'm just going to jump right into step four. Uh, the big book tells me that my recovery can be permanent, but not without the fourth step. Um, so I follow the directions in the big book as best I could. The book tells me I must be thorough, but it doesn't say that I have to be perfect. So it's important that I keep that in mind. Um, and there's also a promise on page 68. Just to the extent that I humbly rely on God and do as I believe God would have me, just to that extent will God match calamity with serenity. So when I'm not serene, I can ask myself, where and how am I not relying on God and doing as I think God would have me? And my life is miraculously better today than it's ever been, but not because everything goes my way or because I don't have any problems. My life is miraculous today because of the gift of serenity. Um, you know, I may be in the storm, but the storm is not in me. Um, and I have the fourth step to thank for that. You know, the fourth step changed my life because it has been such a gift to be able to see what aspects of myself are blocking me from God. Because I can't ask God to remove them until I know what they are. Um, living in the dark about my part about what my part was in my relationships 
certainly didn't make them any better. It didn't make me happy. Uh, I didn't feel good thinking I was right or that other people had wronged me. You know, I may have felt somewhat self-righteous. I may have imagined that I had some semblance of control over my life, but I was miserable. Um, and so step four helped me to stop fighting. Uh, page 66 says, as in the war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. So um, quick example, some things happened in my life that objectively were not my fault when they happened. So what is my part? So this was a more challenging portion of my fourth step. So quickly, for one, I was mad at my father while I was doing my fourth step about something that really wasn't my fault at the time that it happened. But my father is no longer alive. So what is his part today? <laughs> he doesn't have a part today. He's not doing anything to me today. So this resentment is all about me at this point. So I say the sick man's prayer, and then I ask God, God, what is my part? Am I stubbornly holding on to something that happened decades ago to justify my behavior now or to excuse my behavior or to blame others for my actions today? That's the dishonesty. That's the selfishness. And that's my part in something that happened years ago that maybe wasn't my fault at the time. But sitting in my resentment, even if I'm right, that is fatal. And it doesn't just kill me. It's slowly and painfully kills me, and it brings everyone around me down with it. Um, another quick example, this time with my mother. Am I using something that happened years ago to win arguments today? Again, maybe she did something years ago that was wrong. Maybe I was the victim. But now, today, if I dredge up the past every time, if I use the past to justify my actions today, if I throw it in the face of the other person, that is an example of winning the battle and losing the war. You know, what has being right in those moments gotten me? It's gotten me more resentment, more self-righteousness, more entrenchment in my old ways and thoughts. Certainly not peace, not serenity, because these feelings keep me from God. And if I focus on being right and staying right or staying the victim, even if I'm right and can prove my point, my moments of triumph are short-lived when my whole life is a battlefield, and that's what my life was before recovery. And when I stop fighting, when I stop fighting with the help of step four, and when I let go and let God do for me what I could never do for myself, that's when futility and unhappiness are replaced by serenity. You know, before step four and then the rest of my problems, I thought everyone else was the problem. And I spent my life trying to change others and change outcomes and then being resentful when things weren't the way I wanted them to be. Or I would run from a situation that I thought was causing my distress. And even when I was in my new situation, I was still distressed. And I was still using food to try to solve the problems and discomfort that seemed to follow me into every situation. And what I didn't realize until step four was that I was going with me into every situation. And my problems were always following me around because I was the problem. There was too much me in every situation. There was too much me and not enough God. 
So step four helped me be humble and have humility. But notice, it is not humiliation. The point of step four is not to hate myself more after realizing my part in things. Um, at the end of the instructions on step four on page 71, it says that you know, you've probably swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. So what are those big chunks? Um, I'm human, right? If I realize that I'm actually just a person with a lot of resentments who's driven by selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, and fear, do I stop there? Do I say to myself, well, I'm a piece of garbage and I thought I hated myself before. Boy, do I really hate myself even more now. No, 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 certainly not. The book says this is a good beginning, which means my vigorous action must continue. So if I just sit here and stew, then I'm still in self. Uh, so let me pray and let me realize that I am exactly where I need to be. And I'm in good company because everyone else living in recovery took this step too. So we just keep going and we move on to the next step and we move closer to God. Um, and I'm going to end there. Thank you. Thank you, Katie B. from New York. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Charles H. from New York. Hey, good morning, everybody, and happy anniversary to a vision for you. Uh, I'm Charles H. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'll go into the brief history. Like, the the, the, the thing that I grew up with, the quote-unquote G-code, the bro code was, I was taught, don't tell nobody nothing, uh, no matter what's going on. Don't say nothing. Don't be a snitch. Don't tell them what's going on with you, no matter what you're doing. Substances, substances that I'm enduring in, don't say nothing. Just, just hold it in. You know, you know, my father. You know, God bless the dead when he was alive. He said, you know, because um, you know my family's from Jamaica, and he was like, you know, we we in America don't the real men don't wear gloves. We just hold it in. We hold everything in. If I'm binging, hold it in. If you know. Don't tell nobody nothing about it. you can't trust nobody, right? So I was I was taught to stuff my face and, and don't face none of my stuff. You know, um and even in Overeaters Anonymous, that's exactly what I did. You know, Virginia Beach was a great a, a great vision for you first uh convention and I was up in my hotel room uh stuffing my face with with, you know, whatever, right? And even in Overeaters Anonymous, like hearing this, these good shares and, and going to all the conventions, you know, I, I still did did my thing. Um, you know, but for me, right, like the, that was a brief history. But for me, right, like, you know, most people that isolate in Overeaters Anonymous, they're probably binging or probably, you know, contemplating. I was contemplating, like, like my isolation period was like, you know, after evaluating my life, after what I learned, you know, for my whole entire life, don't snitch, don't tell nobody nothing, just just do what you do and bear it, right? I, I, I asked myself one question, how was that lifestyle working for me? You know, and I had to be honest that it wasn't working for me, right? Like I was stuffing my face and, and, and not facing my stuff, right? 
you know, so I learned, you know, to set aside all those things that I learned. I had to unlearn it, and I, I had to start telling the truth, you know. Um, you know, it, it definitely requires uh, me to admit like, I used to say stuff like, man, God know already. I ain't got to tell nobody. Man, who, you know, you know, I used to run that game that, you know, the fellowship ain't that important. They don't need to know. God knows. Me and God knows. But I never admitted it to myself. So, you know, there's something miraculous that happens when I admit to another human being the exact natures of my wrongs and my defects. And, you know, and, 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 and the program of – this is the fifth step in recovery. And it says in a text, trying to uh, avoid this humbling experience, I turned to easier methods, which, which did not work. I only thought I lost my egoism. I only thought I lost my fear. You know, I only thought I humbled myself, but I had not learned enough humility, fearlessness, and honesty. You know, I, I live a double life. I want you to see – Oh man, a white picket fence, and this guy is amazing, and he's great. Just follow me around after the meeting. You're going to find out that I need this program of action. I need to be, I'm ve- today I'm transparent. I'm very candid. I'm very transparent to the point that I need to like buckle down on who I'm transparent to and who I'm very candid with because some people can't take that. At that, at, at that truth. You know, I realize that the monkey's off my back, right? But the circus is always in town. This is a skill set. It's not, oh, one and done. Oh, I'm so recovered that I'm, I'm, I'm in the sky somewhere just chilling with God. Nah. Nah, it's not like that. You know, um, I need to be, I have a, a, a partner that, you know, I have a God squad. You know, because sometimes a 10-step partner is great. It's great to have that. But what about if I have 10 steps after that? You know, and, and, and my myth was, oh, you know, I could do it at night, which is not the case. That's, you know, it, it is inventory, but the 10th the, the step can be done, which, is, which consists of a fifth step, which consists of admitting to God another human being and the exact nature of my wrongs. And here's what, here's, now, here's something that I really enjoy. Like, you know, I, I was taught early on in program, you know, um, that there is a, uh, there's seven uh, fifth-step promises located on page 75. And it says, it says, we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken a step withholding nothing, we, one, we are delighted. Two, we can look the world in the eye. Three, we can be, at, be alone at perfect peace and ease. Four, our fears fall from us. Five, we begin to create, feel a nearness of our creator. Six, we, we may have had certain spiritual belief, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And seven, the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on a broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. You know, and, 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 and also, you know, I, I don't just do this on the initial fifth step. I do this every single day to the best of my ability. You know, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps, carefully reading the first five proposals. We ask if we haven't omitted anything, for we are building an arch 
and we we heard the third step speaker talk about that that arch, right? This is another arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make martyr without sand? These are questions that I should be asking myself every day, not in the first round, not just the first round, because this is a skill set. And how do, we, how do I learn it? I teach it. I'm in the book. People, oh, how do you know this so much? I'm in the book. I'm not into your your problems and into your actions. I'm in the book in my problems and my shortcomings and my defects. I live in a neighborhood, you better not say nothing, don't tell nobody nothing. I'm telling, listen, I'm not shouting from the rooftops, but I got a God squad and I got a 10-step partner that I'm quite transparent about because my life is on the line every single day. It's on the line every single day. Those secrets develop into negative images that destroy my life, destroys it, walking dead. So um, I believe I'm coming close because I hear somebody unmuted, and that's fine, and I, that's great. I used, to, you, I used to be so sensitive to, to all that stuff. Now I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. Like I, I share it and keep it pushing. The fifth step is mandatory. So with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Charles H. from New York. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. KDF from Virginia. Good morning. I'm KDF, a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. And I feel like I'm getting on a roller coaster right now. Like, how can I follow all these great shares? And, you know, this is such an honor to be here today. Um, So I'll just get briefly what it was like. Um, I went to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting when I was 14 years old, Um, left thinking that's ridiculous. Who needs that? Came back when I was 21 and lived in my character defects. I thought that I was right, that I was justified, and so, therefore, I went back to the food over and over and over and over and got to the point where I thought, this is as good as it's going to get. I need to just accept, you know, I have to shop at Lane Bryant, and I just need to be content being a a fat person. I was in a relapse that had lasted almost a year. And I went to yet another meeting, a new meeting, and thought, well, it was God that carried me and said, you know, say yes to this. Say yes and shut up and do what they say. And I've never looked back. That was almost 35 years ago. I was 70 pounds overweight. I lost that 70 pounds and have maintained a 70-pound weight loss for 34 years. And, you know, I thought that Finn would be well. I thought that my life would become perfect once I had a normal body weight and I would be happy and I would get along with people and everything would be great. And that is where step six comes in because um, it says on uh, a simple definition of a character defect is a fault or failure to meet a certain standard. 
It's AA's way of stating the best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning on this lifetime job. This does not mean that we expect all our character defects to be lifted out of us as the drive to drink was. A few of them may be, but with most of them, we shall have to be content with patient improvement. The key words entirely ready underline the fact that we want to aim at the very best we can or learn. So since agreeing to share on this um, earlier this week, um, a lot of my character defects have just reared their ugly heads. Uh, and there's some of you on the line who have um, annoyingly and patiently heard me talk about my boss who I've known for 28 years. And I have relayed stories over and over again, new stories, same, same story of ways that he has pushed my buttons and he brings out the worst in me. And, you know, I would love to say that the first time that happened, I was like, oh, I need to work step six. I need to work the steps on this. I need to learn how to accept him the way he is. No, 28 years later, I still have a button he can push. The difference is today, that I don't live in those feelings. I don't look for someone to say, you need to say this back to him. You need to say this, this, and this. You need to not put up with that, blah, 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 blah. Ways that I can be self-righteous and all of my character defects, you know, self-righteous, um, judgmental, entitled, assuming I know it all, an exaggerated sense of responsibility, um, thinking that I know what's best and he's wrong and I'm right. And the steps have shown me, and especially step six and seven, that I have to accept other people the way they are and I can only change myself. Instead, in this situation, this week, almost 35 years abstinent, knowing this person for 28 years, I instead of retaliating to what he said, justifying my actions and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I didn't mean it that way. That's not what I intended. Of course I know that and blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm sorry. And I did not bring it up again. He was happy, I was happy and we moved on. When I came into this program, I was 27 years old. I lived with four roommates who I pretty much got along with. I didn't have issues there. Um, and as I said, I thought that once I recovered, everything would be, you know, I would know how to handle situations that, which used to baffle me, as it talks about in the promises. You know, I thought, okay, this promise is going to come true. I will know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. But the key word in that is used to baffle me. And instead, in 35 years, I have had a lot of new situations. So I don't know how to handle new situations because I've never been in that situation. I've never been pregnant. I've never gotten married. I've never had children. I've never had stepchildren. I've never had an ex-wife to deal with. I've never had in-laws. I've never had a parent die. I've never now have had three parents die. All my aunts and uncles, um, all my grandparents, everybody has died and I didn't know how to handle situations like that. But God has shown me through this step process what is coming up. What is coming up today, Katie? How are you acting that is not in alignment with your ideal, which is what step six is all about, is 
finding our ideal of how we are supposed to be living these steps and living our life, not in a state of chaos. You know, I don't have to keep going back to the same chaos that I had before. I don't burn bridges anymore. Before recovery, if I didn't like you and we didn't get along, then I would just find ways to avoid you and I would never talk to you again. And, you know, I moved away. I moved to Hawaii. I moved to Colorado. I moved to Colorado in recovery. And I had a lot of recovery friends. And I had a lot of other friends that I'm still in touch with. And if they're not in touch with me, it's not because I burned that bridge. People make choices to move on in their lives. But my point is, is that this is not a once and done thing. And step six to me is the first step that really involved other people and how we carry this out after getting through steps one, two, and three, and four and five. And then we have to start living out this life. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie S. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Larry G. from California. Good morning. My name is Larry G. And uh, thank you for having me on this program, Leah. Uh, when, she, when Leah was talking about the anniversary, I couldn't believe it. Um, I have the anniversary today. Uh, it was on uh, September 11, 2007, that I checked myself into another fellowship that deals with uh, the family of origin. And that, is that, and that fellowship is where I learned I believe, which is the true, uh, the true principle, true meaning of step seven. Um, I believe the reason I've relapsed, I've been in OA over 30 years. I had um, really good, re- really good recovery from 2003, 2008, and been in and out of relapse ever since then until I came to Visions in May of uh, 2020. I believe the fundamental reason for that is because uh, I did not uh, enlarge my spiritual understanding of step seven. Um, step seven goes so far beyond uh, asking God to remove our character defect. That's just the beginning. And I can prove that to you. It's, you can't find it on page 76 in the big book because there's only one paragraph, but if you want to read something absolutely beautiful about humility, uh, read step seven on the uh, AA 12 by 12. And the very first page, it says uh, that Without uh, humility, uh, we we cannot live a we cannot live a useful life. Um, without summoning the faith to meet any emergency, we will we will relapse again. And I've proven that over and over. And I've watched people come in and out of the way. Um, and I believe that uh, Bill is absolutely right that without practicing step seven in my life each day, I will relapse and. Humility is the foundation principle, as it says in that first uh, second paragraph, the foundation principle uh, in all other 12 steps. And I believe that the true definition of the seventh step is on page 72, and it says um, on the third paragraph, that as long as, I, as long as we place self-reliance first, a genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. And the way I, the, the definition, I believe, of the seventh step is that the basic ingredient of all humility is a desire to seek and to do God's will. Um, 
I've spent a lifetime um, seeking comfort, seeking approval, appreciation, acknowledgement from people, places, and things. And I was driven to this uh, this other fellowship in September of 2007 because of my oldest daughter. Um, there's nothing more wrathful than, than the rage of, a, of an older daughter. And, I, and boy, my daughter was pissed at me because I divorced her mom in, two, in 1996. And uh, she was angry at me. Um, and that Thanksgiving, November Thanksgiving of 2007, uh, I again was going to her for approval. I, I wanted her approval so badly I would have done anything. And uh, it, that whole Thanksgiving just blew up. She was so angry at me. And I'm talking about somebody here that I literally, if she needed a heart transplant, I would give her my heart. That's how much I loved her. Uh, I love her today. Um, and it was because of her that I truly learned the true purpose of Step 7. Uh, I had a wonderful man as a sponsor in this program, and we spent like two, two months on Step 7. And one, one evening on his home, as we were unpacking step seven, I was doing my step seven work. Um, I broke down, um, uncontrollable sobbing. And that man came over the couch and he put his arms around me and I cried in his arms. And what I realized at that moment is I had no idea what humility was. I had presented myself as a person of great humility at meetings and, and speaking at meetings and sharing at meetings. I thought that I knew what humility was, but I had no idea because I had seeked approval, appreciation, acknowledgement in my entire life. And I believe today that all of those unsatisfied demands I have on people and unsatisfied expectations is the root cause of my resentment uh, and my fears. And uh, if you want to read something beautiful about um, step seven action, um, when you, this call is over, Google uh, this is Bill's letter, famous letter. It's called Emotions by the Next Frontier. And he talks about how he had to uh, exert every ounce of willpower and action to cut the change of dependency upon people, places, and things, and even AA. And only then, he talks about in that letter, how he could actually love as it is um, defined in the St. Francis Prayer. And so that was true for me as well. Um, and I believe that my daughter was a teacher. Uh, and today I've got to be really careful with her because she's, she's an untreated adult child. And an adult man has no business going to a daughter, you know, seeking her acknowledgement and approval. And, when I, and I, I believe that this is never going to go away. I'm going to be working with this the rest of my life. And I can feel it today when I'm, when I'm um, looking for someone else's approval. And what I do today is I go to God. I go to God. I, I asked Divine Mother. Said, I said, I asked Divine Mother to wrap me in, in your arms and keep me safe and protected. From what? From my own uh, unmet demands and expectations. Um, the, the number one reason I do 10 steps um, is because of this. And the area I've had done a lot of 10 steps is in my relationship with my wife. And I can tell you that our marriage just continues to, to prosper and grow because of my understanding and practice of step seven, which is to really check, you know, when I'm needing something, putting a demand upon her or having some kind of expectation. Um, 
So that's my experience at Step 7, that the reason I have relapsed over the years, uh, I've come in this program many, many times and surrendered, true surrender, right? Uh, where I've experiencing pain, humiliation, I've surrendered. But then three months, a year, three years, five years, I'm back in the food. And the reason I believe is lies in the answer lies in seven steps. Um, and so, so that might be true for you as well. And I pass. I'm out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Larry G. from California. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had armed and became willing to make amends to them all. Larry Kay from Illinois. Um, just a brief announcement um, before I get started. There will be a different Larry uh, handling each of the remaining 12 steps. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I'm Larry Kay, Recovered Compulsive Reader, and I'm from Chicago. And um, yeah, I think Leah pondered, you know, we, we have a step that's so simple. All it involves is a, a, a piece of paper and a pen. Who, who do we know? What, what dopey guy do we know, overly wor wordy guy, that can stretch step eight into seven minutes? I know the guy. Okay. <laughs> so step eight, uh, we made a list, right, of all the persons we had harmed became willing to make amends to them all. And, you know, the uh, step eight's concerned with our, our, our personal relationships. Uh, we, we have to develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. And we made, of course, our inventory in step four. We gave it away in five. In six, we became entirely ready for the removal, you know, the removal of our defects of character. In step seven, we asked for God to remove them. So step eight reads, now we need more action. Now, I will tell you, step eight, you know, Leah talks about the impact, you know, what sort of impact. There were people on my list. One of them was my daughter. Now, she didn't cause me any harm, I could tell you. I can't remember any harm. But I came into program, she was four years of age. She's now 26, soon to be 27. She's sleeping over tonight. She's in my home uh, tonight. And um, what a miracle. You know, she was on my list. I made amends to her. I made amends at the time, as, as you can, you know, with a four-year-old, a five-year-old at the time, I think it was, the first time I made amends. And I've been living, you know, by these, these, this spiritual skill set ever since. Last night, I wish you could have been a, a fly on the wall. Last night was lovely. It was just me and her, movies, dinner, absolutely for me, um, you know, dinner, and just a lovely, enjoyable time. You know, and, and, and so it is about personal relationships. And the AA 12 and 12 tells us something. It says, and I quote it here, it says, the time has come for us to redouble our efforts and see how many people we have hurt and in what ways. And, you know, the harms we engage in are generally instincts in collision, instincts gone awry. You know, for example, if I lie, cheat, I deprive others of their emotional security in my quest to get my needs met. You know, selfishness, I'm always reminded, self-centeredness, that, that's the very root, that's the core of my troubles. And so here's some of the common ways, all evident in our, in our four-step inventory, that I had hurt people. I manipulated people. I attempted to control them. I lied to them for my own purposes. I often lashed out in anger. I stole from them. You know, there were times that I maligned, I don't even know what that means, maligned their character in gossiping with others. I, I feigned friendship. I faked friendship. 
for my own my own desires, my own needs. I withheld love. I disconnected emotionally from loved ones. And one of the problems with step eight, granted, we just need a piece of paper. We need a pen, right? We need to get to it. But the moment that I begin to, why do we even need a step eight? Let's just jump from seven to nine. Why do we need eight? The moment, here's a couple of reasons. The moment we ponder a broken or twisted relationship, I don't know about you, but for me, my emotions go on the defensive. And to escape examining the wrongs that I've done, I kind of marinate in the resentment by focusing on the wrongs done to us. In other words, I justify, I rationalize my own behavior. I need to get this stuff down on a list in eight, even though it's been in four, I gave it away in five. I can forget before I go out and make amends in nine. We're going to hear about that in a moment. The AA 12 and 12 again says that we triumphantly seize upon misbehaviors of others as a perfectly rational excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own mistakes, our own wrongs. And the other stumbling block that can occur in step eight, and that's why I needed, I needed Sherpa's help, I needed a, a sponsor's help in this, is that while I'm making my list such a simple thing, right, I can get a pretty severe shock when I realize that I'm about to go make face-to-face amends to other people that I've harmed. You know, because it was embarrassing enough to admit it, you know, these things in step five, the things that I had done. But the prospects of going to, to visit with another person that, har- you know, that I had harmed, that can overwhelm me. And then my fear conspires with my pride. And it gets in the way of making the list. So in step eight, we need a Sherpa to help us examine my motives and my intentions. And something that was helpful to me and why you know, I, I spent the past year up until recently living with my mother. She was the, the, the biggest resentment. She was on my list uh, of harms that I caused her. You know, I needed to make a, uh, uh, put some headings at the top of the paper for step eight. The first heading was right now. No problem. I'll make amends right now. My brothers, my daughter, easy. The second heading, maybe later. Not, not just yet, but maybe later. And then making my list, the third heading could be no, never. And my mom was a no, never. Too much pride, too much hurt that she had caused me, irrespective of what I have done to her. And that was helpful to me because what happened was, is I, my sponsor encouraged me to start on the right nows. And it's interesting, when I completed that process, the maybe laters became right nows. And the no, nevers became maybe laters. And you can see the direction that goes. So step eight is a, it's a spiritual skill set I still use. You know what? I'm not a list maker. Make a list. I don't like it. Some people love it on this line. <laughs> it feeds into our perfectionism. But I didn't like to make lists. But you know what? Today I can do that and I can explore. And what does it do? What's the outcome? As with all the principles underlying these steps, it brings me into deeper alignment with my higher power. It allows me to live my life comfortable in my own skin, even as an imperfect human being. You know, it allows me to have the type of relations where my daughter can be over and she has a good relationship with me. So does my mom. You know, so anyways, step eight, pretty simple one. We don't wait. I'm reminded faith without works is dead. The directions in the book are clear. You know, if there's no rush with the steps, you know, take your time. No. That doesn't come from AA, doesn't come from our traditions. It's not in the book. That's not the directions from the big book. So we move on quickly. We get this done quickly. 
and imperfectly, right? With that, I pass. Thanks, Leah. Thank you, Larry Kay from Chicago. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Penny C. from Massachusetts. Good morning. Thank you so much, uh, Leia, and thank you for all my fellow speakers this morning. It's been just amazing, amazing. Um, When I think about 10 years of revision for you, and my first reaction when Leia contacted me was 10 years with all the oodles, so much recovery, and and um, so 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 many members. I'm 2,700 podcasts, 11,000 members. It's incomprehensible to me, and I am so grateful that by the grace of God, I was one of those 40 people on the first meeting in July of 2012. So a little bit about my my history. I'm a real compulsive overeater. I was a fat baby, a fat child, a a fat teenager. Um, There were periods of starving to lose. At one point, I lost 50 pounds to be admitted to nursing school. That was a requirement, Uh, 50 pounds in three months. So I know what it's like to just starve for three months. And... um, NEC, star one to unmute. Penny, star one to unmute. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you hear anything I said? Yes. Oh, okay. I don't know. I didn't touch a thing. (laughs) Okay. Um, So anyway, I wandered into my first meeting, and I say I wandered because it just happened to be where I was, and I knew that, you know, I had tried everything, every kind of program I could to get me where I, you know, to, to recover and to lose the weight. And I walked into that first meeting, and it was life-changing right from the beginning. Um, I was greeted by about a dozen other women, and what I heard at that very first meeting is that, you know, I had a disease, that I wasn't a bad person, that I had a disease, that the the solution was spiritual, that recovery was in the steps and the steps are in the big book, and that's all we had was the big book of AA and the 12 steps and 12 traditions of AA. And so I left that meeting with the weight of the world taken off my shoulders. I just had a disease, and so I could just treat it like a disease. I'm a nurse. I know how to. I know what you do with the disease. You find out what the what the uh, the requirements are to to live in recovery, and then you do what you're told to do, and that was that I took off right from there, and I've never looked back, and I've been given the gift of abstinence by by only by the grace of God since June 10th, 1987. So when I was asked about which steps would would, would you know would life changing, which I'd like to share on, my response was any any of the steps. Every single one of the steps was life-changing for me. And so um, I was given step nine. And I just want to talk about how 
my life is so different. And a good example is something that happened just two weeks ago. I have four daughters, and daughters, I don't know, I don't have any sons, but it seems like every so often, just to keep me in line, one of one of the or the other will come in and list my, you know, inventory for me. I don't have to worry about doing it myself. And one of them was over, and she began to tell me all these different shortcomings that I had and, and how she wished I, you know, would be different. And... um in many of her accusations, I wanted to talk back. I listened. I listened, which isn't me. Uh, and um, I cried, she cried, and she left. And I went and sat with my higher power because I know that I need to make amends. I need to change. I, some, and I, I went over to her house, which was just two miles away, and she wasn't home. But I realized in talking to my higher power and taking quiet time that many of her items were valid. Many of her accusations and, and findings were valid. And I went over to make amends. I wanted her to know how I had changed. And um, when I couldn't find her at home, I called her, put a message on her phone saying, "Many of what you, much of what you said was valid, and I'm here to tell you that um, I, I intend to change. And um, one other amends, and the time is going by so quickly, uh, one of the other amends I wanted to talk about is financial amends. Uh, I was the queen of couponing, and, um, and I thought it was clever. I, I bragged. I bragged about how I could cheat with coupons. There were no, no scanning in those days, and I, I knew how to pass any kind of coupon at all and be, um, you know, refunded. Uh, and each time I would be anxious, what if they decide they're going to check every coupon? And it happened in a couple of instances. And so when I got into recovery, when I went through the big book in depth, as we're told to do, I found that it was very difficult. How could I make financial amends to every single company that I had cheated, every single supermarket I had cheated? And my wise sponsor told me at the time that what I should do is make a donation to um, a, a food pantry of some sort, some kind of um, organization that helped people who had um, nutritional depra depravity. And so that's what I did. And she said, give enough until it, it hurts a little. And I did anonymously. And um, the weight, again, it was so freeing, just so freeing for me to do that. And so how have Step 9 changed my life in every single way? Um, how do I know I'm recovered today? and I do call myself a recovered compulsive overeater, is because I can look at those promises on page 83 and 84, and I can take one by one and I can say, God, thank you. Thank you for relieving me of these, these uh, character defects on, on a daily basis. That doesn't mean that I don't have to keep surveillance. I, keep, I have to keep asking myself and talking to my sponsor and, 
and listening to Vision for You, which I've done daily. I don't think I've missed five days since since July of 2012. And if I can't listen live, I'm listening to the the podcast. And so, again, thank you so much, A Vision for You. Thank you for all the people who come to this meeting daily. And, and especially, I pray for the people when I go back and listen to the early podcasts and realize that some of the people that were here and were, were, were here every single day and were speaking, I no longer hear from. And I've tried to contact. I have contacted some of those people. So uh, my life has changed. Um, I'm quick to see my character defects. I ask God to help me. And uh, I'll just end with this. This morning I wrote a two-way prayer asking God, what's the message you want me to give? And he, he answered me by saying, why do you ask that question? Don't you know that I will be there with you? And you can trust that the message I put in your, you know, from you will be exactly what I want you to say. So this message is nothing what I thought it was going to be like, but God knows it was what God wanted me to say. And I love you all, and God bless. I'll pass. Thank you, Penny C. from Massachusetts. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Melanie C. from Oregon. You know, I'm sitting here, and it's deep in my heart that that such testimonies are moving me this morning. I'm just shaking my head and pinching myself and saying, how come I'm still here today, you know, amongst such such wonderful, gracious testimonies, knowing who I am. Happy anniversary to the Big Book Study Group of Vision for you and all you cherished members. To my knees, I'm humbled today. My name is Melanie C., very emotional, and I live in Canby, Oregon, way over here on the west side of the United States of America. And it's typically 4 a.m. when the recording is hit on the first Vision for You Big Book Study of the weekday. And much to the care and attention and the application of the 12 steps modeled by y'all today, the United Fellowship, and the God of my understanding, I am recovered. I never want to forget that because it's not been of my own devices. I am not capable of such application at all. I know that. I was first introduced to Overeaters Anonymous in the fall of 1989 by my mother. (laughs) 17 years later, November 5, 2005, I had my first bona fide day of abstinence. It took 17 years. This is my personal abstinence date here in recovery. And I hold close, close, close to that, and it's priceless to me. I owe a debt to those who held on to me and brought me, sometimes drug me through. It continues to this very day. I came in here broken down and torn apart. I weighed in somewhere north of almost 300 pounds, And I've maintained a weight loss of over 165 pounds for the better part of 15 years with with one exception that's happened in this last couple of months. I'm currently under the care of a couple of doctors and a dietitian working on a health restorative protocol for me, which is affecting that number now. So we'll see how that turns out, and I'll report again later on, on what that's tuned up to be like. I'm of the hopeless variety and not an easy keep. The proof of that, you can just ask my network, my close, close network, and the, my sponsor and the sponsees around me. I have the privilege today to speak on my experience with Step 10, 
continue to take personal inventory when when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Or not so promptly, I try. As an active compulsive overeater throughout the day, the only thing that I had for decades to silence that noise and that awful twitch was to practice steadfastly the graceful finesse of the swan dive face plant technique. Grimly, darkly, chasing the effect of that sense, that blackout, that oblivion, that awe. I had no other skills, no other choice. I was itching from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, ready to explode with rage, and it was racing around me. But soon, as I got into these rooms, I was walked right up through each step and introduced to step 10. Completely sober now, I see the disease. For the daily treatment of the disease, which is my mind, step 10 was the best kept secret to turn to instead of to food. I no longer had to turn to food. Can you believe that? I had a new skill set. For me, I used to sweep up all those little dust bunnies that irritated the bejesus out of me, real or imagined. And for this compulsive overeater addict, they could be real, but typically they were imagined. In the beginning, my sponsor recommended that I keep a teeny tiny notebook nearby because I had so many pesty gnats, pesty gnats that were running around me so that I could write them down and deal with them through this 10-step process. That head talk that would drag me into all kinds of messes day in and day out, typically laced with anger and rage and revenge. It was life-changing for me, this 10-step. And those folks that were so situated around me it was life-changing for them as well. I'd have somewhere near 30 or more of those little boogers that would be in any given day for me. And quickly I learned to ask myself, hey, woman, woman, how come so angry about a thing like that? And at who? And what's your part? Who do I hate again today in this particular moment? Is there anything that seems like I am the only one and the only way that's thinking here, the way that's going to be best today, to the exclusion of any other possibility that could be going on around me as a source of disturbance? What was I, re what was I doing to reinforce that kind of thinking about my, my view alone? How was I being all turned inside, inward, seeking only to justify or sell my point of view? And what was I doing behaviorally that compounded that kind of thinking to think I was right all the time? and that eroded my whole entire life. Was I lying to myself about any of this? State just the facts, Melanie, in this situation. Was I lying to myself? Was I making anything up, swaying the situation in my direction? Was my ego involved? Was I spewing self-righteous anger? Was I inserting myself into something that quite frankly was none of my business? That was typical. Then in the end, I would come to the end of this internal inquisition and ask myself, what happened, Melanie, that frightened you so much that had you lay on this kind of venom and ugliness in this situation? What am I so afraid of that I would turn to anger to bury myself under it? What happened and how come? And then I would notice a character defect or two or three or four that had surfaced. And I would speak to another person about this and ask God at once to remove it. And I inevitably would find that somewhere long ago, something similar perhaps 
unresolved was activated and I was projecting it onto this situation and onto these people and truly had nothing to do with the situation at hand, but rather a hidden festering wound that was simply untreated. Thank God, a chance to be treated. The impact that this has had on my recovery has been the key for me towards transformation of old behavior. Slowly, (laughs) over time, opportunity after opportunity, taken to run through the guide and directions of a solid, complete step 10, I knew that I was walking forward towards something redeemable in me. I knew in some teeny tiny way or sometimes a significant way, I would have been changed for the good. It has kept me available and present to power to keep me sober. It reconnects me to power and reaching for more service. Step 10 is a treatment for the evidence of an activated disease and is is as powerful as 100 locomotives in its sway in my case. I want to say that it is not designed to make me feel better necessarily, although I often do, especially because I'm charged with reaching out to help another after I have settled my place with God. But I am always reconciled with power, safe and protected, growing and useful. Growing and useful in my wretched rags. Step 10 is a well-utilized step in my recovery toolbox. I pick it up every single day. I would never live without it. I cannot live without it. And I'm far from being anywhere close to being able to lay it down in any time of the day, in my day, each day. Practicing the art of remaining undisturbed is my life's work. In that way, I can keep fellowship with you and my family around me. Practicing steps 10, and in that way, I have not had to take a compulsive bite or dive into oblivion for approximately 8,853,480 minutes because it's minute by minute sometimes for me. I guess I owe a debt not only to this fellowship but to a debt to step 10 as well. Thank you very much for this chance to be here. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Melanie C. from Oregon. Step 11 Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Wendy B. from Arizona. Good morning, my fellows. This is Wendy B. recovered in Arizona. And to me, this step is how I stay in fit spiritual condition. Um, So I was asked to share a brief history about myself and how um, Step 11 impacts my life. So like many of you, I I grew up with a view of God that was punishing and distant. Um, I thought he sat up in heaven and looked down at my suffering and did nothing to intervene. Um, My first real impactful encounter with a loving Heavenly Father was when he took me back in my memory to my traumatic birth. Um, I was three months premature and placed in an incubator during the time period when um, preemies weren't held. Um, So now, you know, in hospitals, they know that the first months of an infant's life are a critical bonding time, you know, and they need to be held and loved to meet their need for security. So I was just laying there screaming, you know, to be loved and held, and my cries fell on deaf ears. 
no one responded. And I just gave up and turned inward, and I felt rejected and unlovable. And God spoke to me in my heart during that memory, saying he wasn't standing by watching me suffer, but that he was inside of me feeling my pain. And he wasn't a distant God, but a very real presence inside of me, wanting to have an intimate relationship with me. And so the statement in We Agnostics that says um, we found the great reality deep down within us, and it's only there that he may be found, rings true for me. Um, When I started studying the big book, I was able to establish um, how to get a working relationship with an invisible God. And I learned what it meant to turn my life and my will over to God. You know, at first I had a hard time believing, you know, that I could have what I heard in the voices of others, you know, God doing miraculous changes and transformations. But I decided I wanted what I heard enough to let go of my doubts and my fears and choose faith, you know, that if it worked for others, it can work for me too. And um, step 11 starts at the bottom of page 85, and it says, prayer and meditation, and then work, work if we have the proper attitude and work at it. And um, to me, the proper attitude is one of humility and faith. You know, I take a position of humility when I recognize he's the one in control, calling all the shots, you know, and I'm here to do his will, not demanding he do my will. And faith is believing he's real. You know, his word is real. His promises are real. I can trust him that his plan is better than anything I could dream up. And um, the next paragraph describes the nightly review. And it uses the word constructive, so I know I can focus on the positives in my day. And um, so I add in my gratitudes, what I'm powerless over, what I did well, areas of growth I noticed, as well as areas that need improvement. And um, I bullet point, you know, when I was kind and loving and what I packed into the stream of life, where I was of service to God, my family program, and others. And I add God shots where I saw God that day and what he he was teaching me. And I just love doing my nightly reviews. You know, I get such a good feeling when I'm done, you know, of a day well lived. And, um, I send it out to my accountability partners, and it's a way we keep current with each other's daily lives. Um, We've given each other permission to give feedback, and it's just beautiful. And um, next, the big book goes into the on awakening paragraphs, and it says, we consider our plans for the day. And so that's when I surrender my plans and ask for God's plans. You know, I trust that he's going before me and preparing the way and that he's orchestrating my circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Um, The next paragraph says, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. So when I'm unclear, you know, uncertain what to do, you know, that's when I get to relax and take it easy. You know, I don't struggle or try to force a solution. I just wait and let his will unfold. And I trust he will reveal his guidance at the appropriate time. And um, the next paragraph says that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. So I can set aside my insecurities. I can set aside my inadequacies and my fears. I can trust that God will provide what I need while I'm walking forward in faith, doing what I believe is the next right thing. 
And that's what I'm doing right now, sharing on this meeting. You know, I believe God opened the door, and it's my part to walk through it and face my fears, trusting that he will use my voice and speak through me. And I also know he orchestrates all things for my growth, and he's interested in refining my character so I become more in alignment with him. So it also says um, we ask especially for freedom from self-will. Um, God created me with a free will, you know, and I get to use my right to choose by choosing daily, you know, that I want God's will, not my own selfish desires. And the next paragraph says, be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. So I, I listen to spiritual podcasts. I read spiritual literature. I do journaling. I also do two-way prayer, which was a, a practice promoted in the Oxford group. And it includes writing down what I hear God speaking to me. Um, God says, my sheep hear my voice. So I get to trust that, that this is God speaking. And um, that practice has been life-changing to hear him speak directly into my life, you know, and my circumstances, giving me insight and guidance. And, um, you know, that's what feeds me and meets my deep childhood need to be heard and understood. Um, so the big book also says it works, it really does. And that's my experience. You know, I've, I've seen the transformation happen in others. I've experienced it in my own life. And the doctor's opinion gives a, a good description of this transformation from a trembling, desperate, or despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. And, you know, I have God-reliance and contentment. I now have the ability to accept life on God's terms and be at peace in myself and with the world around me. And my time's up. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Wendy B. And step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Esther C. from Canada. Thanks, Leah. Good morning. Special good morning to all our any newcomers. My name is Esther C., and I'm a compulsive overeater from Canada. I have been a compulsive overeater forever. Until I recovered, I was either eating or wishing I was eating or trying to refrain from eating. And I reached a top weight of over 260 pounds. Um, thank God today I'm in a healthy body with a weight loss of over 100 pounds. I came to the rooms of overeaters and overeaters and others about 15 years ago. And a few years later, about 12 years ago, I called up someone in whom the problem had been solved and I recovered that summer. So there's a lot to say on step 12. Um, I probably each step could be a special edition on, on its own, which they have been. Maybe even each paragraph in the big book could be a special edition on its own. Um, but today I'm just here to talk about the experience I have with step 12 and its impact on my life. But I would just I want to point out that in the AA 12 and 12, um, there's an essay on each step, and the one on step 12 is outstanding, and I encourage you to read it if you haven't already. And if you have, read it again and again, as, as I have done. Um, you know, when I'm thinking, was thinking about step 12, it, it occurred to me that it's really the first step where I went out to the world as a recovered person. 
um, where I had to deal with other people as a recovered person. I mean, in step five, I gave over the fourth step to my sponsor. And in step nine, I, you know, I made amends. So, you know, I reached out to those people. But it was really in the 12th step where I was put, you know, positioned to carry the message to other compulsive overeaters. Um, and, and in all my fears, right? Or I get to put all this newfound transformation to the test of life. I, I always joke that life really isn't hard. All the stuff I have to do isn't hard. It's just that all those other people get involved, right? There's family, friends, coworkers, employers, employees, customer service people, all kinds of people. And there are, and once I have other people there, then there suddenly become conflicts and disappointments, right? Frustration. That's what happens when I live among other people. So if I would, you know, distill this whole idea in a few sentences, I would say that in carrying the message um, to compulsive overeaters and practicing these principles on my fears, I learned more about myself and where and how I'm blocked from higher power. And I I have a, you know, front row seat and to, you know, to watch the impact of all those blockages, you know, and, and, um, and their impact on other people and, and as well the unblockages, right? Like I get to see in action, look, this is how I'm blocked and this is how it impacts me and everybody else. Look, this is what happens when I practice the principles on my affairs and I get unblocked and it's impact on me and everybody else. So step 12 basically provided me the framework where I got to put my new principles to the test. Step 10 and 11 are, you know, how I stay in harmony with higher power. And that's whom I already decided to turn my will and my life over to. So thinking about it some more, there are really two areas mostly, in, you know, in sponsoring um, that I think that impacted me the most. Number one is thinking that I'm higher power and I can control outcomes, right? Because now I have all these people that want to recover. And number two is insisting on getting my way, right, or, or, or things going my way. Even, even my motives were valid and noble. So I'll give you some examples. The first time I sponsored, I remember I was quite fearful, right? Would I do a good job? I'm not going to be able to sponsor like my own sponsor because she had like decades of experience. So I was definitely learned that my sponsor's recovery has nothing to do with me and that, I, you know, articulate or otherwise gifted sponsors don't necessarily have a better success rate than, than the brand new sponsors. What I learned, and again, this was through trial and error, lots of error, lots of cleaning up on that. I learned that I'm here to do my part and I can't control outcomes. And this is a lesson I still learn, you know, every day to some degree, right? I have new exercises every day that teach me this. Another example was the bossiness that could be, that was part of sometimes of my sponsoring, right? Where I had to, felt I had to push, pull, or cajole sponsees to do things a certain way. My, my, my motives were noble, right? I wanted to recover. I wanted to have what I have. And I certainly felt powerful in doing so. But this is, well, once again, about feeling important and potent. And the lesson learned here was that, and I'm still learning, of course, is just my feeling of security and serenity come from being able to make things happen for people or, or, or push them around. You know, um, it's, shouldn't my feeling of security and serenity come from the relationship I have with my higher power, right? Uh, that developing relationship. Um, there were times where I was, took sort of the perfectionist approach. I also like to call it the outsourced approach, right? If I just do it right, then they're going to recover. So I'd give you 27 handouts, 13 podcasts to listen to, a whole, you know, spreadsheet of how many calls and to whom and what type of people you could call. 
and like all these um you know structure a whole program for 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 newcomers right so that um if they do it did everything and were able to check it all off then you know no reason why they shouldn't recover but i realize there's nothing wrong with you know handouts or podcasts or suggestions but really my my job here is to share my experience strength and hope right um you know, I remember an incident where I I was uh, there was a new meeting and I was sharing the message of recovery and it seemed to rub people the wrong way. So I reached out to uh, you know like an elder statesman and they said to me, you know, you can't lose out if you share your experience, right? Um, the big book tells us you can believe anything they say about themselves. So one thing I learned in sponsoring is I learned humility, to share my experience only and not to share my opinion on things, not to make grand statements you know, that aren't found in the big book about why people do recover or don't recover. Just, this is what I did. This is what happened to me. And sometimes it happens when a sponsor will say, you know, this has happened to me. What should I do? And I'll say, I don't know. I've never, that hasn't been my experience. The on again, off again for years, you know, recovery wasn't my experience. I can throw out there some of the things I've seen um, and sort of Maybe some ideas that might be useful, but I I don't have an opinion, and I necessarily don't have statistics. Um, the other thing I learned, and how step twelve has impacted my life, is I learned that nothing bad can happen if I'm not completely comfortable and carrying the message. And two other compulsive eaters are in on my affairs. Um, you know, unfolds differently than what I expected. First of all, not all my sponsors become my close friends. Many of them years later, I don't even remember their names. I don't. It doesn't impact me if they prefer not to work with me and they leave me. And sometimes, you know, the phone jangles at all hours or in our parlance, you know, today our inbox notifications ding one after the other. Yes, there's a price to be paid to be a service. So I just need to follow the dictates of my higher power and do my best um, as I go along and not to uh, stress over the fact that the, the need seems to be greater than the ability to provide for the need. But mostly what I'd like to leave the last thought is that what I learned from my um, step 12 is I learned that I live in a wonderful world full of blessings and that I'm connected to a higher power who loves me. And he's placed that spark of himself in every one of us. And I get to discover those sparks as I carry the message to other compulsive overeaters and in all my affairs. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther C. Thank you to all our speakers today. Thank you for your beautiful service. Stephen G., Janet B., Kathy S., Katie B., Charles H., Katie F., Larry G., Larry K., Penny C., Melanie C., Wendy B., and Esther C. Thank you so much. You have just heard 12 recovered compulsive overeaters. Each have described in their own personal and powerful way how the 12 steps in God have made a changing impact on their minds and hearts, producing a profound and revolutionary change, resulting in a spiritual awakening and freedom. 12 voices woven together, a tapestry of transformation, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. 12 simple steps which anyone can apply. How free do you want to be? Thank you, everyone.
Thank you, A Vision for You Fellowship. Let's close now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.